I think most of us are pretty familiar with the old Emanuel Lutz painting, Washington Crosses the Delaware. I think you remember that Lutz created three copies of this painting, which have gone on, to, of course, to be printed many times over. When I was a kid growing up, I used to actually kind of study the copy of this painting my dad had. Um, he had it hanging in his office, and I liked it. But I actually had no idea of the history behind it. I don't know if you know the story, but the painting takes us back to the evening of Christmas Day, 1776. The war between the colonial army and the British was in full bloom. And truth be told, the British were winning. Between expired enlistments and desertions, Washington's army had dwindled along with the morale of the troops. Most historians agree that if, if you could have interviewed the colonial troops at this point, you would discover few actually believed that victory could still be had. But th there was one who, understanding the stakes at hand, refused retreat. I'm, I'm talking, of course, about the great General George Washington, a man who would someday go on to become the first president of the United States. On the evening of the 25th, Washington's morale had been strengthened by the words of author Thomas Paine. Recognizing the need for a call to action, Paine had published, I didn't remember this, but he had published and distributed a piece that he simply titled The American Crisis. If you've never heard the words, they're worth listening to. Here's what he wrote. Paine wrote, these are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of his country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of men and women. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Little did Payne know just how hard the conflict had become or how hard it would become. Gathering his strength and his troops, Washington had called for a surprise attack against the Hessian forces under the leadership of Johann Rall in Trenton, New Jersey. The plan was simple, actually. Three groups would cross the Delaware during the night, avoid detection. Washington knew Rall's forces would not expect an attack. The, the waters of the Delaware were ice cold. Sections of the river were turned to ice, surely no troops would attempt to maneuver the waters given the frozen conditions, certainly not on Christmas Day. Rawl was wrong. The first of the troops to cross would be led by Washington himself, utilizing sturdy German boats, crafts capable of supporting not only soldiers, but artillery as well. The second troops to cross would be led by General Collawalder, a trusted companion of the, of the war. The third would be led across the Delaware by General James Ewing. So the launch was made. Studying the characters in Lutz's painting, you can see it in Washington's face. Absolute resolution. This was victory or die. The men at the oars strained against the cold waters of the Delaware, their lives on the line for a single cause, freedom. What's missing from the painting is significant. What many don't know is that while Washington's troops make their way to the shore, the other two boats, the other two sets of troops that were to join Washington and Trenton 
will not arrive. Faced with less than ideal conditions, both have turned back, leaving Washington and his troops all alone. It is this fact that, for many years now, has made this painting even more significant in my mind. This is a moment in history that will go on to become a critical turning point in the war. From December 26 forward, the battle will turn. The colonial troops will go on to secure victory after victory en route to the conclusion of the war, raising a question. How did he do it? How did Washington pull it off? It would be one thing to celebrate the victory of three troops over the Hessians on that fate field night, but there were not three. There was one. Washington was alone. Or was he? I've got a question for you today. As we begin our time together in this podcast, has there ever been a time when the, in the midst of some battle in your life, you felt alone? Where you're up against a wall, where the odds are not in your favor, when everything seems like it's stacked against you and you feel alone in the fight. Have you ever been there? But my guess is that many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, I have no doubt that some of you are there right now which is what I love about the section of Daniel 10 that we're going to look at together today, a section of scripture that I've simply titled, Never Alone. So allow me to do it this way. When I look at Lutz's painting of Washington on that Christmas evening in 1776, I recognize something. There's one who is present who cannot be seen. While the great general and his troops will indeed have to face the Hessian army apart from their missing comrades, I've always believed that Providence places another character in the story. Fighting for Washington on that night so long ago, I've always believed were the unseen hosts of heaven, spiritual beings. They surround us at all times, angels. We refer to them as the hosts of the Sabbath army. Well, there's certainly no way I can prove it. This is what we know. We follow a God who holds our every move in his hands. There's nothing that happens in my life or your life that surprises him. Nothing. He watches over us even as we pray. And it's one of the most significant ways that he does so is through these beings that he surrounds us with, angels. Angels who sometimes protect us, sometimes direct us, and at other times, yes, they fight for us. In our time together, I want to do two things. First, I want to recognize that many of you are facing battles in your life right now, hard battles, battles in which you feel alone, yet are you? See, the second thing I I want to do today is answer that question with a resounding no. I want to share with you my belief that you're not alone. You never are, that you follow a God who fights for you. I don't know if you've ever read it, but one of my favorite books on angels is an old one. It's written in 1975. It's Billy Graham's book, Angels, As God's Secret Agents. It's been a bestseller for years for for good reason. When When he wrote the book, Billy and his wife, Ruth, were themselves going through difficult times in their lives. Now, if you're like me, Billy Graham's always been someone who you've seen as a spiritual giant. I I grew up with him, watching him hold football stadiums filled with people in the palm of his hands as he proclaimed the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. According to biographers, Billy's sermons were heard by over 2.2 billion people. Think about that. 214 million of those were at live crusades. 
of which he conducted 400 over the course of his lifetime. It's estimated that during his ministry, God worked through Billy to convert some 3.2 million people. So I'm telling you, I've always stood in awe of Billy Graham. I don't worship him or elevate him beyond human. Billy would tell us, look, I'm just a country boy with a big God. But it's hard to imagine him having troubles, especially spiritual ones. But that's exactly what Billy and his wife Ruth faced with their own family. In her book, Prodigals and Those Who Love Them, Ruth Bill Graham tells stories of two of her and Billy's five children that became spiritual wanderers. Her book is intimate. It details the pain that went on behind closed doors. Ruth recalls, here we were, the most recognized Christian family in America, the perfect family, the family that prayed together and stayed together and did ministry together. But that was the surface. Behind closed doors, I cried. Two of my own questioned God. One went their own way. It seemed that no matter what we did or what we said made any difference at all. Maybe it made it worse. Billy and I, Ruth says, felt oh so alone unable to share our battles with all but a few close friends. Yet in our aloneness, we discovered something. I love these words. <laughs> we were not alone at all. It's out of this period of time that Billy wrote his book on angels, recognizing that it's in those times in our life where we feel most alone, that God is present, guarding, guiding, calling, fighting for us. Angels, Billy would go on to say in his book, are mentioned some 300 times throughout the scriptures for a reason, because God uses them, these secret invisible agents to fight for us in those moments we feel most alone, which brings me back to the question that we began with today. I want you to think about this. Is there some place in your life, maybe right now, where you're facing something difficult, a place where you feel all alone? If you were with me last week in our podcast, you remember that this is exactly where we left Daniel. The year was 536 BC. It had been two years since the Persian ruler Cyrus had issued an edict setting Israel free from the bondage that they experienced over the course of the last 70 years of Daniel's life. But instead of returning to Jerusalem to rebuild, the people had lingered. Caught up in what seemed to Daniel to be the lethargy of slavery, Israel stagnated. And the more they did, the more Daniel felt like giving up. Was he alone in this cause? Where, where, where were the nation's leaders? Where, where were the faithful followers of Yahweh's call? To read the beginning of chapter 10 is to find Daniel all alone in a state of mourning when something happened. Daniel discovered he was not alone at all. The date was April 23rd of 36 BC. Daniel had come to the banks of the Tigris River to pray. I'm always reminded that throughout the Bible, rivers are just that. They're places of prayer. Maybe there's something about water that draws a person's soul upward toward God that brings hope into times of uncertainty. On this day, Daniel would come face to face with the greatest hope in the world. He would find himself before the one who fights for us, Jesus Christ. There's a word that we use to describe what takes place at the beginning of chapter 10 of Daniel. The word is ecstasy. Literally, the term is made up of two parts. 
the first part of the word ek or ex means out of. And the second part, stasis, means standing. And the word refers to those rare times in scripture where a person experiences what we might call an out-of-body experience, where a person is swept out of their standing to another realm. Daniel describes his ecstasy this way. I want to read these words, chapter 10, and Lord, would you give us your wisdom as we do? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Listen to the words, quote, I lifted my eyes and I looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of gold of euphaz. His body was like barrel. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of tumult. I want you to think for a moment about each part of the description given to this man who now stands before Daniel. His face is like lightning. His eyes flaming torches. I mean, I don't know if, you, if you're old enough to remember the Marlboro Man, but you would look into the Marlboro Man's eyes and it would just kind of burn through you. But flaming torches, whoa. His arms and feet like bronze that's on fire. When he speaks, the earth moves. I want you to feel this. Every part of this man who now stands ecstatically before Daniel conveys one thing, power. Not earthly power, but the power that belongs to God alone. It is as if, it's as if God in this moment is answering Daniel's deepest question. Daniel, do you, do you feel like giving up? Do you feel alone in the battle that lie ahead? Daniel, you're not alone. I'm here, present. I am the one who fights for you. You know, as I tape this podcast, we stand at the beginning of a new year, 2023. Now, I know that optimism marks the beginning of every new year, and it should. New starts breed optimism. But I have to tell you, in the last few weeks, I've become aware of some battles. One man is battling Lou Gehrig's disease. It's horrible. As his body slowly slips into the grip of a horrible, horrible pain he's expressed to me. Pastor, I I don't know what to do. I feel so alone. Another is in the throes of depression. I don't want to do anything. They've lost their marriage. They lost their job. Most of the things that used to bring this person pleasure have lost all meaning. I I hear him say, "I I don't know how to battle this. I feel so small, so alone. There's a wife who recently lost her husband. We did everything together, she tells me. Wasn't supposed to be like this. He was going to retire. I was going to follow. We had plans. You know what I have now? Nothing. I'm alone. So I'm going to ask you again, is there something difficult you're battling today? And if not, good. I want to rejoice with you. But I also know that something will come. It always does. In this fallen world in which we live, there always comes a day, most of the time out of the blue, that takes us to that place where we don't have answers. Our strength wavers. We find ourselves wondering, am I alone in this? Let me tell you, you're not. You may not experience as Daniel did in ecstatic vision, but our God is every bit as present in your life. The one who fights for you. As you think about whatever your battle might be, I want to encourage you to take inventory. Sometimes God surrounds us with people who join us in our battle. 
whether our spouse, close friend, someone you're doing life with. These bring not only perspective, but in a real sense, needed energy, coupled with a word from the Lord. So who are those people in your life? If you're struggling with a battle, ask them to join you in the fight. God does not want us trying to shoulder our battles alone. At other times, I'm convinced that God sends his secret agents into our lives. Do you really believe that, Luke? Absolutely. And you should too. The book of Hebrews chapter 10 reminds us that though we may be unaware of it, we should not be surprised that God uses his angels in our lives. Most of the time, we're not aware of their presence, but they're real, standing beside us, battling for us. Just think about it. Whatever battle you're facing today, it probably looks like too much for you. But to angels who've been alive since before God's earthly creation, nothing's new under our sun. They stand ready to take on what we cannot or not recognize their presence in our life. And then there's the one who stood before Daniel. Make no mistake about it. This is Jesus. Do you remember his words as he prepared to leave this world? He told his disciples, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Never doubt his presence. He knows you better than you know yourself. He will fight for you. I want to close with this thought. I'm convinced that one of our enemy's greatest deceptions is to cause us to feel alone. If he can get you there, maybe you'll give up. Maybe you'll lose hope. Who knows? Maybe, maybe you'll lose your faith. Our enemy works overtime to bring us to that place. But here's what I know. The one that fights for us is stronger. He's holding on to you and to me with hands that bear the scars of nails. I'm convinced of this. The one who fights for you will not let you go. Well, that's all for today. I, I really enjoy this time together. Look forward to 2023. Just sharing more thoughts um, as we continue our journey through the book of Daniel. I'm going to be praying for, for you and your family, especially as we enter this new year. Whatever battles you face, that you know you're not alone. I'm going to ask that you would pray for me and my family. And until next time, my prayer for you is that you'll have a God-sized week. Mm-hmm.